0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into that, I have a little bit of news. We're going to turn Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. We'll be taking the Barge House at Oxo Tower Wharf on the South Bank and asking a fistful of companies and agencies to tell visitors how their material will shape our future. It's all very exciting, and there'll be more details as the year progresses. Right, well, on with the show. So I'm really happy today to tell you that my guest is the wonderful Peter Lord. Together with his old school friend, David Sproxton, Peter founded Ardman Animations in 1972, which rapidly became known for its witty, character-driven stop-motion work in plasticine. Since then, the Bristol-based creative powerhouse has given the world characters such as Morph, Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep, as well as working on a dizzying array of films, shorts, TV shows, adverts, music videos, computer games, TV idents, frankly, the list goes on. The company has won Oscars for the likes of Creature Comforts, The Wrong Trousers and Wallace and Gromit The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, while Peter has been nominated himself on several occasions, including for The Pirates in An Adventure with Scientists. Aardman recently picked up another nomination for its short *Robin Robin*. Peter was awarded a CBE in two thousand and six, and received a Blue Peter Gold Badge, no less, in two thousand and fifteen. Peter, thank you very, very much for doing this. It's very kind. A great pleasure. Um, was that all reasonably accurate?
1: That's pretty good. Yes. Okay, oh, <laughs> I recognise that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: glad to hear it. I mean, one of the things we do to kick off this podcast is try and place where the guest is for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Now, often I'm talking to makers and artists who have a studio in a light industrial estate just off London's North Circular. However, your situation is a little different. You have a £10 million bespoke office. Can we talk a little bit about the building and the the company structure? I'm guessing it's a, an expression of the company culture. Uh,
1: yes, thank you. It, it is indeed that. So the story is that you know, we started out, there were two of us, there was me and Dave, and we moved to Bristol, moved around Bristol in a series of small studios, And in the 1990s, the early 1990s, we moved to a site where I am now, which is close to the river in Bristol, the docks in Bristol, and close to the uh, Brunel's steamship, the SS Great Britain. And uh, loved it. It's it's a great location. I'm so happy in this location. And anyway, the building was excellently an old ex-banana ripening plant. So in the heydays of bananas whatever the hell that is, they used to come in by boat into the dock here and be brought into the old banana ripening warehouse where they were brought up to the perfect colour between yellow and green and then shipped out. Anyway, that was our studio, and we had a big car park. And after many, many years, we built this building that I'm in now in the car park. So this was a new build for us. And, yeah, I mean, it's lovely. I, I, as I speak to you now, turning my head slightly, I look at, I'm looking out the window – I'm seeing sky, I'm seeing trees, I'm seeing docks and space, which I'm very fortunate. Of course, that is actually damn all use in an animation studio, which has to be black and light-controlled, but I'm in the office part. And as you said, thank you, I think, I think you're right, I think the, the office was absolutely designed as an expression of the company philosophy, you know, which is, you know, inclusive. <laughs> I was about to say non-hierarchical, but I am in the top floor which I know that that suggests. Uh,
0: mildly hierarchical.
1: Mildly hierarchical. That's more about when we came to build this place, because I'd had no window for the previous 35 years or something. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get a view this time. So <laughs> that, that was built into it. But apart from that, it's lovely. It's a sociable space. Everything that we need for the offices here, you know, um, including a canteen and that kind of thing. And it's full of spaces for people to... um Mingle in you know, I'm sure right. that architects are always doing that. Do we, do we ever get as much mingling as we planned? I don't I don't know. it's funny. It's, you still find that people tend to lurk in their little groups, you know, but um, <laughs> but it was actually designed that people had to bump into each other. That was very much part of it.
0: Yes, now architects do design mingling space very rarely do they design lurking spaces or at least <laughs> consciously. Um, it was actually created by uh, an architect called David Meller, who's a yeah. not. The very famous designer who did all the cutlery and and the traffic light, but a a different Bristol-based David Miller. Yes,
1: yes, No, we had a great relationship with him. It was was Mm. lovely. And Mm. it's worked out really well, because I still think of it as the new building, but it's not. It's 12 years old or more now. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It would be rather better, Nick, were it not for COVID, because we've got a very handsome and faintly comical more handsome than the comical, staircase, which is a gigantic piece of ply, like one great sweep of laminate, with a gentle bounce to it because of the way it's built. If you jog down it with enough energy, it just bounces when you stop, which I love. And it's got a handrail and lots of the exposed wood, which is quite a lot. All the surface has been washed off by constant
0: um, hygienic washing over the past two years. Apart from that, we're in good shape. You alluded to it in your what you were just saying, which is um, Bristol, Mm. which has become your base, very important to you. I know you were born there, but you and your co-founder, David Sproxton, you grew up in Surrey. So how and why did you get to end up using Bristol as your base? It was interesting. We were in Surrey, Walton-on-Thames,
1: and I don't think either of us had much affection for the place. Mm. I was always a bit dismissive of it, really, even though I lived there. So we met when we were at school. Good grief, we met in I think it was 1966, which is...
0: You, know, you were 12 years old. 12 years old, that's right. Yeah,
1: wow. Blimey. Yeah. So we met and we got into this animation as a just as a hobby. We went our separate ways to university when the time came. And we I didn't do a fine art course or I didn't do an animation course, notably, because as far as I know, I always tell the story that I should check one day, that there was only one available at that time which was in Guildford in Surrey, which was too close for comfort. So I wanted to move away from Surrey. There was more to it than that, but that's why I decided to do um, English literature rather than animation. God knows how that would have worked out. So I did English literature in York. Dave did geography in Durham. And when we left the university, did we think we have a degree in animation? I would say not. I would say not. I would say we went to university in a quite old-fashioned way to uh, learn and follow our enthusiasms and hope, expect that something would turn up. I think that was probably the game plan. (laughs) At the end of the three years, we had to confess that nothing better turned up than what we had when we started, which was this hobby in animation. So we decided we would set up somewhere. There's three reasons why we're in Bristol. What is the mechanics? You know, what are the key moving parts that brought us to Bristol. And what they are is that I was born here and had great affection for it, Mm. which I never had for Surrey. Our single connection with the business was with a program that was called Vision On, a TV program that was made, recorded in Bristol. It wasn't technically made in Bristol. The production office was in London TV Centre, but it was recorded in Bristol. And so the team that we were working with came down to Bristol every month to record. And the third reason was that Dave's girlfriend Sue had settled in Bristol and taken up a career in the museum. So, for these excellent reasons, we thought we'd give Bristol a go. It was not an obvious place to be because there was no animation business here. That, that's mm. a simple thing to say. Um, you know, we had no or very few colleagues in the business at all. There was a couple, but not much. So, there was no passing trade. And f- such people as we knew in the animation would be inclined to say, You're mad, you know. You shouldn't be in Bristol. You should be in London. That's where all the work is. But we chose Bristol. And, you know, like any good story, there was a couple of lean years and then it just started to work. And once it started to work, there was no problem at all with being in Bristol. In fact, if I could jump many years down the story, there was a period in the 19... In the previous century, there was a period when we made quite a lot of TV commercials. Mm. And all that work originated in London. And we made quite a virtue of luring the uh, metropolitan elite, uh, animation elite, to come to Bristol. And they they liked it. People enjoyed it because we were different. We were, in every way, we were different. The work we were doing was different, and our manner and style and approach was different. And, you know, I don't think I'm being overly modest or anything like that. And I say that we were not the fancy metropolitans, you know. I don't know what we were instead. The more laid-back West country approach, I think, is what people liked.
0: And presumably, the city has changed quite a lot. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's quite fashionable now, isn't it? uh, Watershed and and obviously the Bristol O'Vix has been there forever. It's got a thriving art scene. Was that the case when you first arrived?
1: I don't think it was. It's a lovely city. It's been it's mm. been good, and as you said, you mentioned the theatre. That was good, and the music scene was good when we came. Although I have to confess that I wasn't a part of it actually at all. But I knew it was there. But now the two things in Bristol, particularly now, I think, a natural history at um, the BBC and animation, which is. There's a lot of small, medium-sized animation companies scattered around the place, and it's an excellent, thriving art scene.
0: Also, the other thing I want to pick up on, and we talked about the difference between lurking and mingling space, but collaboration is a vital component of what you do. Yeah. I mean, over the years, your projects have become more elaborate and they take more people. So I'm intrigued to know how you've managed over the last couple of years with pandemics and lockdowns and social distancing and all that kind of malarkey. Yeah.
1: Here it is, man. We do many things now. I mean, the scale of operation is astonishing to me. And very, very broadly speaking, it's divided between stop motion animation and the rest. And by stop motion, I mean, you work with puppets, you work with real puppets on the sets with lighting and models, sets, props, lights, a miniature film studio, and all the rest would be keyboard based in one way or or another. Everything from two-dimensional drawn animation to very elaborate three-dimensional 3D CG animation. So we do both of those things and a great lot more around it. And the hands-on stuff, the stop motion, that had to continue to be done in the old way, effectively, because that required people getting together in a space and mingling, Mm. mingling, collaborating, (laughs) was inevitable. The other part of the company... A lot of people worked and still work today remotely. There's a lot of people working from home. So the building I'm in, the one I told you about, the the newish one, which I love, which is a lovely work environment, is actually barely half full at the moment because a lot of people are still working remotely. We started on a project which has been entirely during the uh, COVID era, which is a TV series for kids. It's CG animation and we have here a team on site here of eight at the most, often down to two, three or four, and the other, the, the whole rest of the crew are all remote around the country. Right. But this is coming into this building is still so important for me. I observe the people with astonishment. You just bump into people when you're here. You just and then you have conversations and you learn things. And some of the things out there that are really
0: important, you know, really significant. We've had people on the show who've received OBEs, and actually they're a bit too a penny on the yeah. show for some reason. <laughs> we've had a guest or two with a, a CBE before. Yeah. However, we've never had anyone on the show who's been nominated for an Oscar. Ah. And you've been nominated yourself a couple of times. Yes. And the company has obviously won on the several occasions yeah. over the years. Yeah. Now, award ceremonies are not what they were. No. The Golden Globes weren't even televised this year. But you were winning stuff you know, in the glory years. Mm. Can you briefly talk us through, I'm intrigued, what the experience <gasps> of, of an Oscar night or a day yeah. is? Yes, okay, good. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Do you? I do. Yeah. I'm a sucker for it. I have a, the feeling that probably I've got a bit older and uh, and that wouldn't love it quite so much anymore. And also, <laughs> I suspect it's not as much fun as it was. It's, it's, it's true. So it's in LA, mm. and um, the first time we went... It was hilarious how we knew nothing about how about it at all. My dinner jacket was literally Oxfam's finest, you know. <laughs> and uh we didn't know what to do. We just said so we just potted around and Nick won, uh which was rather wonderful, and that was great. But subsequently I got we got the hang of it a bit more, and um everything about it is great because beforehand there's a, a period which is is just fun, which you should bloody well enjoy especially the sort of two weeks ahead, briefly, you're very, very interesting to everyone. So briefly, they, they want to interview you and and you, you go on, you know, some weird TV programme that no one's ever heard of over here. And you maybe go to a, one of the big studios, like you might go and visit Disney and meet the people there. You're a big deal, you know, that's a lovely feeling. And then the next experience is that he then goes on to win and continues to be a big deal. My personal experience is I then Mm. don't go on to win, so after that things go downhill rapidly because (laughs) (laughs) oh well, suddenly suddenly the fun does tend to leach out rapidly, which is why you should why you should totally enjoy it before, like because right up to that moment when somebody says and the winner is yeah, it's all high and after that it's a bit of a downer. I mean, but the joy of it, I mean, you there's a great limo jam as far as I can see, there's just limos nose to tail. These days, again, they slightly take the edge off it by checking all the limos for bombs, which is kind of right. so much fun. Yeah. You know, so you're in the limo, you've got some champagne, you know. all times I've been, just with a bunch of other people from Bristol. Giddy has could be, you know, thrilled to be there. And then the, the red carpet is amazing, absolutely amazing, because you know, it's like it looks. It's just these walls of photographers and camera crews and interviewers and some of the general public are in there as screaming fans on the bleachers. And you walk along and there's, there's famous people and everyone's screaming. And of course, they're not screaming for you at all, <laughs> but you're going to enjoy it. You know, it's, uh, so I, it's a spectacle. I remember thinking, this is what the Americans do so well. Showbiz is their, is their art for, they, they invented showbiz. They invented it, you know, all, all the ballyhoo and the, ca- the carrying on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, reading your story, there were two characters I wanted to ask you about, and we will start talking about Plasticine at some point. But before we get into that, mm. I mean, which in some ways seemed to sum up your and the, the Ardman's narrative arc. Yeah. I mean, as you said, your first gig was on BBC children's show called Vision On, mm. which kind of then mutated into Take Heart. Now, for people my age, Tony Hart was this kind of iconic figure. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't good at drawing and he seemed to make art possible for, for people like me. Yeah. What was it like to work
1: with him? I really liked him very much. Mm. It was great. Literally what happened was that the whole show was recorded at the BBC here in Bristol and very occasionally we'd go along to watch. But that was quite, that was a, a rare thing, but we did. Uh, and then we'd make our film sequences at, at our tiny studio And the two would be put together, you know, by the magic of TV. So that didn't require meeting him very much. But then later we did a a series of five-minute films about Morph and he was the narrator and it appeared in Vision. So then we'd see more of him then. Anyway, he was everything he appeared to be. You know, Mm. very, very genuine, kind, modest, Genuine, just just that, and and a very talented artist, you know, really talented. Also, very hardworking. Apparently, I wasn't, I didn't notice this, but it was. I was told by the producers that he'd do these live demonstrations, and they were meant to be quick, you know, because you can't hang around for too long with with um, spraying, and dabbing with um, bits of cotton wool and powder paint and stuff. So they were necessarily quick, and he practiced them a lot to get them right. You know, so hardworking. And in the early days, when it was Vision On, which is a, a extremely long time ago, they had a, a annual get-together of all the people that contributed to the show, which was a, a big and eclectic group. So There was Tony there, absolutely. There was a woman called Pat Kiesel who, who did signing for deaf children. And there was a mime artist was always there and a guy who did film montage and other animators. So that was very exciting for us because we were literally teenagers, I think, when we first went. It was terribly exciting to feel you were part of something, you know, this small but enthusiastic community.
0: Mm. And then another figure that seems kind of hugely important at a very different stage in your career Was Jeffrey Katzenberg, who set up DreamWorks Studio with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. You made a fistful of films with them, including Chicken Run, Flushed Away, Curse the Ware, Rabbit. Mm -hmm. I mean, he seems like an archetypal Hollywood mogul, but you obviously established a rapport with him.
1: Yeah, but it's it's almost hilarious to think of him in the same breath as Tony Hart. I mean, well, exactly. I think it's a fascinating story. So different. Wow. Yeah. I still remember him very fondly. I do. he was great you know because I mean, he took a gamble with us i think and we made those three films over a period of about best part of 10 years and um there were moments <laughs> there, were, there were moments i suppose when we didn't deliver what he wanted you know and we we had one project that failed and that was and that was painful but god knows he stuck with us through it you know he didn't cut us off you know the deal was that we had some um an output deal, I think it might be called. I don't even know the technical term. But we came up with ideas. We pitched ideas to him. He'd sign off on one, and then we'd, and then we'd develop it together. And so, yeah, that was a, a long and profitable relationship. I mean, the reason ultimately it broke down, is perfectly simple, is that we weren't American enough, really. I used American there, not <laughs> in any pejorative way at all, just to say there's a style of film that is a, a box office hit for all the family and you you know them you know it's Toy Story or it's Sing or it's um the Minions you know it's, these films are huge hits and make huge amounts of money everything about them is Hollywood and we just aren't that and in another future we could have said okay we give up you know um tell us what to do and we'll do it your way but we didn't do that you know so we parted but that was fine I mean that It was natural, you know, to do that and write. And um, so I always feel we gave it everything. We gave it 10 years, you know, um, a lot of commitment on both sides, a lot of financial help from them, a lot of support. And we learnt all kinds of interesting things, um, not all of which were good, but most of them are good because making an animated feature film, there's a process quite beyond model making and puppetry and um, there's a process of, of storytelling, storyboarding, voice performance, recording. There's a, a very elaborate process you go through that ends up what appears to be a fairly spontaneous and natural finished film. And we learnt that from him and his team.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, this podcast is all about materials. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to talk about materials. Yeah. And the material that you and Armand are most closely associated with is plasticine. Yes, and my desk is covered in it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember picking up your first lump of modelling clay? How old were you? So I must have been about four, I think,
1: three or four. Right. My parents had a house in Bristol, and the kitchen was in the basement, and I can picture myself at that table in that basement making things with plasticine. Mm. Funny enough, the only thing I remember with any clarity is not terribly artistic. It was um, a plasticine loaf, a couple of centimetres square, with the semicircular raised crust on top and the square bottom where it came out of the tin. But the real thing that Mum did was cut it into slices, like a, sli- <laughs> a sliced loaf. And that image, I can picture. I can picture the the plasticine falling away from the blade, you know, and leaning over, and just think how brilliant that was. I remember thinking. Mm. And then I picture it again quite clearly at primary school. Those days <laughs> that all the listeners will know when um, you got multicoloured plasticine in coloured strips, and then you made something, and before long you had that lovely. Dreary, grey, colour that, <laughs> that it all became. <laughs> but I remember, yeah, so I remember that. Yeah. So I remember from very early days. Now we talk about it; it comes back to me. My mother making, or maybe we made together, a, a sledge as used in the Arctic—a sledge and a, and a dog team out of plasticine. And then, when I was at grammar schools, and now when I already would knew Dave, for example. I made a caricature of disgraced ex-president Richard Nixon. He was in the news a lot, and he had famously in the caricatures, he had a very long pendulous nose and big drooping jowls and heavy bags under his eyes. And I made a small caricature in Plasticine of him, which was interesting that I was doing that. That must have been some sort of new experiment to do that. And funnily enough, I remember having made it, there was not much point to it. And so I converted it, and I can't tell you why, into a little figurine. I'm looking at myself, probably about six inches high or less, using that same head on a humanoid body, and I made it that he became a tailor. God knows why. <laughs> why a tailor, I do not know. But I, I picture him now with his hands raised in a, that's looking lovely sir. gesture, with a tape measure hanging around his neck. And, I, and it was plasticine, and I painted it. That was what I remember. Yeah. So I painted it with acrylic paint or something like that. So he so had a, a blue suit and a, so on and so on. So Richard Nixon turned into um, a, tailor. a tailor.
0: And that sense of transformation was implanted in that case, which is quite interesting.
1: I suppose it was. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because transformation, is of course, became the whole thing you know, for us. Mm. So when we started in animation, Dave and I, and I say that, we were, you know, what were we, 17? We did a series of experiments with very little information and we experimented with drawn animation, cut-out animation, what is called pixelation when you animate a human body like as if it was an animation puppet and working with plasticine. Heaven knows where that came from. I do not know. I no idea. But I remember the first example was what I might call rather pompously a bar relief. What it means is, just plastic lying flat, and I made, I think, I made a little cottage lying flat on on the tabletop. So square shape, a couple of windows, door, perhaps the door was panelled, maybe a, a dormer window, some glazing bars, nothing very grand. And then under camera, with the camera looking down on it, I would model it a bit and take a picture and then model it a bit more and take a picture and model it a bit more. And as I recall that the front door opened up and um, gradually it turned into a, a flat relief image of an elephant. So the house mm. turned into an elephant under the camera. That was an experiment. You know, that was an experiment. We did it and we did the experiments to show to the producer of Vision On for whom we were trying to work. And... uh that was the first time, the first time we used clay. But then what we did was we we followed a different course. We went into drawn animation. Yes. Instead with the character called Ardman, a superhero yeah. called Ardman,
0: who was named after an artvark, Sort of.
1: Yeah. He didn't do anything oddvarky at all. He didn't live <laughs> in a hole or eat ants or anything like that. He was just a bloke. <laughs> that was called artman And that's so funny because that's obviously that's the company name now. Yeah, yeah. You can see it at the start of a film in the cinemas, you the movie comes on, great big red let Wow. Looks impressive, you know. And it just comes from that joke, which is barely a joke.
0: Which was him falling down a hole and then and then pulling himself out, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah. You yeah. obviously didn't decide to stick with the two D joke. No. Why the plasticine? What was it about plasticine that drew you?
1: The drawn animation was not very good and um, very time-consuming. And it's true to say that at that time, drawn animation was the mainstream, whereas now you'd say computer animation is the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Drawn Mm -hmm. animation was the mainstream. Everything from rhubarb and custard, Top Cat through to whatever Disney was doing this year, through to The Jungle Book. A great ladder of talent, of which we were at the extreme bottom. You know, we were barely even on the first rung. And we weren't doing very well. And our stories weren't very interesting and blah, blah, blah. So then we, for some reason, went back to that plasticine transformation. And that was the breakthrough mm. for us. So we took this material, and you mentioned transformation, metamorphosis, was a big part of what we did then, but not the only part by any means, but it was a big part. That was the unusual thing. And so we took plasticine models and we might make, I don't know, the first one was a plate of food, (laughs) some badly made, I will say frankly, Uh, a couple of sausages, um, a few potatoes and a load of green peas on a plate, meant to look like real food, not looking much like real food, but there we go. And then it, it started to move, easy to animate. And it moved and it squished together and became a bear-like quadruped that then stomped off the plate and walked away. So not much of a story really, but that was the breakthrough. It was using this special thing that plasticine could do, this ability to metamorphose, which is a super strong point. And that's what we then pursued. We did that. We also did Conventional little stories. I say conventional little stories, like we would have um burglars trying to break in to steal a picture in an art gallery, would make a very a very bad art gallery set, you know, hardboard, really crummy. <laughs> <was> really terrible. <laughs> and uh and Dave would light it so that the uh the burglars had a torch to see their way around. And the puppets were six inches high, you know, and um humanoid. If it was a burglar, he'd have blue trousers and a yellow jumper and a brown hat, you know. He'd never have a striped jumper because stripes in plasticine, absolute anathema, <laughs> you know, that one, absolutely <laughs> impossible. So that was just a little story with, with little men and not so different to what other people were doing, but we were the only ones doing it with plasticine. And as far as we knew, the only people in the world really And when we could um, make something transform, find one of those stories that involved a magical transformation, then that's when people really sat up and take notice. And, you know, I mentioned two things. I mentioned the fact that we're at the bottom of this animation ladder, barely on it, and that we had these annual meetings where we met our contemporaries. And I, I just remember how much better the reaction was after a couple of years when we were doing... The plasticine animation,
0: that's what right, it Right, right,
1: right. Honestly, from being at the bottom of that ladder with everyone above us, it now felt we had our own ladder. Absolutely. Mm. There was nobody else on it Like, we weren't competing with anyone. At that time, there was a strand of kids' animation done in Britain by Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman. They did it. Bureau and Hardwick, they did it. There was a company called Filmfare, I think, and these people would do, let's say, the Clangers, let's say, Trumpton, mm. the Wombles. So that was a strand of animation. And we were like that, but we had this extra special thing, the plasticine. It allowed us to do these transformations I talked about. It also allowed us to do something which sounds terribly simple but was surprising at the time, is we could change the faces. Those are the ones I mentioned the Wombles, as I remember, had um, the ability to twitch their noses. That was about it. And lots of the others, they never changed the face. In fact, I think they tended to make a virtue of it. Mm. Perhaps the finest example of the old school would be uh, the Magic Roundabout. I don't know if you remember that one. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, is, it's gone back
0: a very long way. It was Dougal and Gertrude and, yeah. A French
1: series dubbed into English. Yeah. It featured puppets and they had big heads and there was a face painted on the head and they didn't change. It just, it did for all purposes. And by convention, they didn't change their faces. With plastic, it was fairly simple to re-sculpt the face while you were animating. Now that technique is highly sophisticated, but at the time it wasn't sophisticated mm. at all. And so it was easy to carve on a frown, for example. You know, your character's puzzled, stick on the, a frown and uh, That probably doesn't sound like anything now, but at the time it was surprising because it wasn't part of stop-motion animation.
0: Very good. We've talked about Vision On and that's where you had this gathering of animators. Yeah. As we've said before, that show was cancelled, but then Take Heart happened and you created Morph, which again, for people of my age, completely iconic character made out of plasticine. So how did Morph and of course Chaz, his friend, how did they come about? So for Vision On, we made over
1: three years, we must have done 36 short films, I would say. And I say short, 20 seconds long, 30 seconds long. Some were stories with um, little characters dressed up in costumes, plasticine costumes, I hasten to add. Some were more surreal and were more just about movement and changing shapes. Some were magical. And they were all different. And towards the end of that period, We hit an idea of some little creatures who were pretty magical and there were five or six of them in different colours and they all looked the same but in different colors and they were smaller than morph and they had long pointy noses and two arms and two legs. So they were creatures. They didn't look like anything particular. And some of the BBC christened them the Gleebies. That's the name they were became known by, although no viewer would ever know that. I can remember some odd Surreal nonsense, like making a big papier mâché asteroid or something with holes, and they would pop in and out of the holes. So that was that was setting them in some abstract space. But also, I remember them on the artist's tabletop, and this is where they cross over to morph. So here they were, little bits of plasticine, four inches high, three mm. inches, high, pretty small, five of them. So they were quite kinetic. They would run around in a little group, very simply animated. And I remember them knocking over pots of paint and making a mess. And I guess that worked. Whether the BBC requested that or whether it was our idea, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. But they used it to intercut with the studio, and that was the seed for Morph. Mm. And so when Vision On finished and Take Art started, there was a terrifying gap in there where we thought our career was finished before it started because that was the only contact we had. But it it was reborn as Tay Hart and the producer, a guy called Pat Dowling, wanted us to replicate sort of what we'd done with the Gleebies. That was the challenge. Mm. And for the first few attempts, we tried to recreate a part of Tony Hart's studio in our little film studio and get Morph to interact with things that Tony might have been doing, uh, which would, again, if I look at them now, they are absolutely terrible, but <laughs> <laughs> but we got away with it. And so the illusion was, in a way, it was the same as reality, that Morph appeared to be five inches high, made the plasticine, living on Tony Hunt's tabletop. And that's what he was, mm. except he wasn't really alive. But apart from that, that's what he was. He was made up out of plasticine. You could see he was made out of plasticine. You saw him roll in as a ball of plasticine and then change shape and pop into a little man and then wreak some havoc. And um, <laughs> and that was it. And that story, that relationship, then was what we then played on for the next you know, I don't remember exactly how long—fifteen years or something like that—probably yeah. when that, that yeah. same idea
0: continued. What influence did that character, did the morph character, have on Ardman as a company? A very big influence. Yes, it was. Very, it was very important
1: on a purely economic level. It got us going. What we did was we did—I um, can't count again—thirty-five, forty, fifty short films to go with the TV series, and then somebody said. Morph could have his own self-contained series. Then we made a series of 26 five-minute episodes that were called The Amazing Adventures of Morph. And the significance of that was continuous income for two years, which was not much income, to be honest, but <laughs> continuous. So we got on our feet. I let my craft as an animator, and Dave was with lighting, and we discovered that we created something that, people really loved, you know, people related too strongly, and that was priceless, and it gave us some economic freedom. I mean, honestly, it allowed me to buy a house, which is a funny thought now, given how difficult it is for young people to buy a house. On the the basis of being able to point to my income, which was paltry, in those days, the fact that we seemed to have a two-year contract was enough to buy a house, whereas as a freelancer, you wouldn't stand a chance. But it's also true that at that stage... There wasn't much impact outside because nobody with any influence had ever seen it, is the truth of the matter, because it was seen by kids largely and um, perhaps non-working mothers largely. That was like the main audience. And so I can remember as a young man going to a party, oh, what, what do I do? I do animation. Yeah, Oh well, I've uh, seen morph, though no. It had no impact at all in parties, whereas now... Big hit now. now, <laughs> now, now. Guaranteed um, passport to famous liberty. But, <laughs> but, but then it counted for nothing for a long time. I remember that in jumping ahead a little bit to the early 80s, we did a TV commercial for Lurpak Butter, yes. a man that seemingly yes. made of butter. And we got that because of Morph, and we met the young, <laughs> the young creatives, as they're known in the advertising, who must have been you know, eight or maybe even 10 years younger, you know, newly graduated from somewhere. And they knew more from... Yeah, school days. Yeah, yeah. When that happened, that was the start of something.
0: So Morph was the key into the advertising industry, which is interesting. He kind
1: of was, yeah. He, yeah. Kind, of, he kind of was. I mean, yeah.
0: you did. As you just said, you had a bit of a lull after Morph came to a conclusion. And it yeah. seemed to me there were two things that changed, one of which was the launch of Channel 4, yes. which is, what, 1982? hmm And the other one was the rise of the British advertising industry. And yes. I guess both of them, in slightly different ways, took risks. And Channel 4 took a film that the pair of you had made called Down and Out and turned it into a series of shorts, which was uh, animation for adults, I guess. Yes, it was, yes.
1: Yes, Down and Out is quite interesting, talking of plasticine. It's interesting because we were approached by a producer in the BBC in Bristol, a guy called Colin Thomas, still a friend to this day, a sort of a a, a somewhat radical filmmaker in the days when radicalism was favoured, who made political documentaries and all kinds of stuff. And he commissioned us to make a film based on an idea which was an existing idea. It's funny how the stories just go back and back and back, but you don't know where to start. In the 50s, in America, there were filmmakers called John and Faith Hubley, and they made more than one film where they had recorded the voices of their children talking and playing. So they recorded the voices and dramatised the kids' imaginative play in drawings so if the kid said oh and there's a monster uh, there's a dragon then they'd draw a dragon and if the other kids said yeah with a big hat then the poppy's got a big hat that sort of thing that sort of thing anyway that idea was passed on to us to me and dave colin had this idea to make a series based on that principle so we embarked on it of course we did because we had no work so <laughs> we'd do anything we'd do anything <laughs> and um we embarked on it, not knowing at all what we were doing. But Colin was a sensible influence. And what we did, I'll tell you what we did, and then I'll try and work out why we did it. What we did was we sent a sound recordist, or well, the BBC sent a sound recordist, to a Salvation Army hostel in Bristol and hid a microphone to just pick up the conversation when people came to the desk that wanted a bed for the night. So, uh... What we had was uh, three hours of absolutely inconsequential stuff with occasional fragments of interesting conversation. And then, very fortunately, a fragment of about seven or eight minutes where some elderly gentleman came in and, well, I was going to say he wanted the bed for the night. It wasn't that simple. It wasn't perfectly clear what he wanted, absolutely, honestly. But we recorded that, and it had dynamic to it. It had shape to it. And what we did in the end was we more or less dramatised it with little plasticine figures. It sounds odd. It is odd. And and I can't tell you why it worked, but there was some magic in the extreme naturalism of the conversation, which was very real, unquestionably real, the sort of thing that you couldn't write it. There was that, and then the image, these plasticine figures that were absolutely contrived, that were, were clearly not real, that were clearly cartoons come to life. We were challenged to make the figures appear to talk. So let's just say, so the figures, now they're a bit bigger than Morph. They're almost twice the size of Morph. And the guy who is behind the counter is wearing a blue uniform. The old man that comes in has got a brown jacket, grey trousers, stone-coloured shirt, flesh-coloured face. Both made of seam. And the old guy asks what he wants and gets confused and sounds slightly paranoid at one stage. My job was to dramatise that, to make this... Plastic he really appear to say those words and perform the emotions. That was very new. That was more new than Morph, I think, really. And it had a sort of a, a faintly political feeling because it was about, you know, this disadvantaged bloke. And in a way which was not true, but was fiction, we made the guy behind the counter rather unsympathetic, which was interesting because I don't think he was, but by... The way we shot it and the way we made his face look, we could make him appear to be unsympathetic, and that's what we chose to do. And it made for a sort of drama, and it had the strength to it, you know. And um, it was very little seen because things weren't in those days, you know, if you missed it, you missed it, and then it never came back again. But it got some reviews and it was striking, and that became our second strand. So, there we had two strands we had the morph strand, which was playful and for children. It was about comedy. And then we had this other strand, which was for adults. So, um, so both of them were very useful. And both of them were, you know, let's bring the conversation back to plasticine again. Both of them were made possible by plasticine. The guy talking was a very interesting case. And the, I don't know what to call them the old guy that came in. I did a test. And when I sat down to do a test, I had never done anything like it before. Nobody had. Nobody had ever done it, it before. Lip sync with a lump of plasticine. So we broke down the sound so we knew how long every sound and every syllable was. And then I matched that with a dope sheet with this plasticine head and I tried to sculpt the mouth to look like those sounds. What else can I say? You know? We had some bright shiny eyes, which were teddy bear eyes I'd bought from a doll shop. Bright shiny glass teddy bear eyes stuck in the head. And I thought this was very cool because I thought that the plasticine looked like flesh and the eyes were shiny like you know, like eyes. The first test was a nightmare. Absolutely, just, just like you know, horrifying because the eyes didn't move, they just stared glassily like a corpse very like a corpse. And below them, the mouth squirmed around in the most ugly fashion. Was, you know, that was a learning curve. So, the second test was a simpler, stronger face, a more sculptural face, um, with the more of a separate jaw, and the eyes were now beads that were sunk into the head. And by making the eyes move to making them a swivel, to focus, to glance, suddenly that then the face came to life. Yeah, you know, we we discovered something, yeah, pretty amazing, I think. As I say, we'd never seen it done before. When we started, we didn't know if it was possible. And, of course, that's what we're still doing today.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, the style, at least the recording, sounds like the seeds for creature comforts. Yes, well, absolutely. It was, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That was it, yeah.
1: And Creature comforts has, has since been very important to us as well. So all these things you do,
0: you, these, these seeds you plant, can be really, really influential. Yeah. grow in different directions. So you had the adult strand, and then you obviously had this advertising thing going on. You've mentioned Lurpak, but you also did the Scotch videotape, the one that went re-record, not fade away, which right, yeah. again, oh. for a certain generation is very evocative. <laughs> yeah. Cuprinol, uh, uh is another one you yeah. did. I mean, you, do, you obviously enjoyed working with the advertising industry. Yes.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it very much, actually. Yeah, I did. I it was a kind of a golden era. Advertising was very playful. And <laughs> it was very, um, funky is a bad word. But <laughs> I mean, um, everyone was a maverick, so it seemed. And the last thing they were, was slaves to <laughs> what they were doing, which was selling stuff. You know, So it was very amusing that there'd be, in our world, there was us, we were the makers, there was the people who commissioned us, they were the creatives. Art director and the and the writer and the producer and then somewhere beyond them away from us was the client the the person that was actually paying for the whole mm. thing mm. and I'm not saying for one moment that the client wasn't respected no 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 but there was this as I say a, this sort of maverick thing that the art people said oh, you know we know what we're doing you know, leave it to us we're the artists you know and so as a result most of what we did was very playful so what's not to like you know yes we were selling butter and bleach and beer but in the comics interesting way. And I enjoyed those times. I also enjoyed a thing that I didn't know I would enjoy, which is interesting, is I enjoyed being a salesman, which surprises me because I had no background in that or instinct for that. But I liked going there, going out to London, going to some very posh, expensive agency and selling the idea to, you know, I enjoyed that. That was exciting. Mm -hmm. And, by the way, we made a lot of money. That was also Well,
0: great. yes, I was going to ask, I mean, not so much about the money, but I guess the company got larger. Ooh. I mean, you had people like well, Nick Park joined in 1985. Um, I mean, what effect did his arrival have on the company? There's a lovely deal that I, I was reading that, that you arrived at, that he could finish his student project whilst he worked for you. Yes, that was it, yes. Which is a grand day out, which is yes, right. Wallace and Gromit's first first adventures, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. When we met Nick, I suppose we'd been working semi-professionally for eight years or something, so quite a long time. And we we had Morph, we had this film down and out, and we are doing some commercial work, actually. So we had quite a substantial um, career, actually. We met Nick at the National Film School where he was a student and instantly saw that he was really good. He was doing A Grand Day Out. And the thing that I remember... Most interestingly was he. He developed his particular and idiosyncratic style of lip sync with the great big exaggerated mouth. And um, if you look at Grand Day Out analytically now, you'll see there are half a dozen shots before Wallace had the big mouth when Nick hadn't invented it yet. In those days, you you, you couldn't afford the reshoot, so they just stayed in the film anyway. And so Wallace. Evolves before your gaze, actually. Instead of so Gromit, by the way. So, Nick had done a line of dialogue where Wallace said, I think the line was, We forgot the crackers. So, he's standing in the spaceship. They're about to take off. And he's, Oh, we, oh, we forgot the crackers. And um, he animated it with the, as it were, the old Wallace. It was fine, but he wasn't happy. It wasn't what he wanted. And then, he, then he had a second go when he did this very dramatic exaggeration with a big wide mouth. we we forgot the crackers. And it's not a funny line, but when you saw it, it was a funny line. So he'd made it, you know, his animation was fundamentally funny, which is great, great. That's his great skill in in a way. I mean, he's he's a comedy genius, Nick. So he was making his film. We were busy getting busier, we needed uh, another animator. He was obviously a very good animator, so we asked him to join us, and the deal was yes that he would finish his film at our studio uh, and work for us you know if we if he we were busy he 'd work for us if the jobs weren 't quiet, he 'd finish his own film, which is how it worked out.
0: Was it easy to find people in those days? Were the skills available? It seemed quite easy, interestingly, yes, we very quickly
1: got around us a core team. Some of them are still around. They're still alive, but I mean, like um, there's a guy called Richard Starzak, who's always known as Golly, who basically created Shaun the Sheep. Although Nick had done some foundation work, but really it's Golly's creation. So there's him. There's a guy called Dave Redette, who's a cameraman, who's currently working on the new Chicken Run film. Model makers that we've known all that time. So we quite quickly met a group of people, more or less our age. And we learned together is the truth of the matter, you know, and developed a culture, the Man culture, whatever it is.
0: Was a plan beginning to formulate? I mean, what, 1989, Creature Comforts came out that obviously mm. won lots of awards. Were you beginning to look at Hollywood as an option, I wonder?
1: Yeah, we must have been. We must have been. I vividly remember being at some festival, and probably I think it was in France, I think it was at Annecy, when we were riding quite high with success and saying, you know, Confident man, no, 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 no. we'll never make a feature film because I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think it was possible. Really, I mean, we go back to Nick because so much of the success of the company is really down to him, actually, you know, his particular talent. And it was his work with Wallace and Gromit that really laid the foundation, made it possible for us to do Chicken Run. So he did A Grand Day Out on his own, actually. He did the second one, The Wrong Trousers, with a whole team, there's maybe a dozen on the credits, but it's but really, the team was probably about six, I think most of the time. Then he did a close shave where he animating and moved into directing more, and that team was probably about thirty, so what we were doing was finding the way to industrialize our process now, I hate the word, but that's kind of it, you know, like when he did Grand Day out, that was absolutely the tour, you know he was building everything and doing everything. And that's how we started too, Dave and I. But it's very hard to do that with a bigger project, you know, and um, you need to work with ever bigger teams. It is sort of industrialised in that sense, although still I'm happy to say that the heart of it is really the performance of individual animators working with the material. That's the absolute part of what we do.
0: I'm interested. It seems to me from the outside, and having done a bit of reading about you, that there's a kind of a tension that exists in Arden because there's this restlessness on one side, you look at the work you've produced and who you've produced it for. Mm. The company constantly seems to be on the move and usually growing. But by the same token, these pieces themselves, are, as you point out, are incredibly intricate and take years to produce. Mm. So I'm just wondering if it's sometimes difficult to reconcile those two desires. There are
1: certainly challenges in what we do, and they are always there as well. They don't, we don't get on top of them, but we work around them, we work with them. The strange thing about what we do that it is craft it's so crafted. we work with brilliant sculptors and um carpenters and electricians and painters and designers and mold makers and illustrators and cartoonists, all these craft people that we work with, and that we so value their work and love what they do it's a fantastic atmosphere to work in, a fantastic world to work in, but we have all the constraints of. The real world as well. And we employ a lot of people. A lot of people. And uh, that's a choice we kind of made. For us, the the team and the uh I I really slightly hesitate to use the word family because of all the overtones of paternalism, but that sort of family group of people that are codependent and you know, like each other very well and have worked together a lot and learnt from each other, all that kind of thing. It's a very strong it's a very strong thing and, and important to me. And what we do is very labor intensive. And we, of course, we, we also need to be efficient, like right? because we're, you know, you're a big company with a big turnover. It's got to work. Yeah, you know, it's got to work. And it does work. Sometimes in the past, I've imagined that there'd come a time when you'd be so far on top of things that, um, you know, the money would just come pouring in in the sack loads and you wouldn't have to uh, think about it. But that never happens. You know, we're always wrangling with whoever's buying our work, you know. And, you know, and trying to make sure that people feel they're well paid in the in ever-changing world, you know, it's, it's complicated. And I guess there are, you know, there are tensions built in, but I'm very, very used to those tensions.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, you talked about a little bit when we touched on your, the Hollywood years. Yeah. But one of the traits that gets mentioned about the company repeatedly is this sense of Britishness. Mm-hmm, yes. And um, the concept of Britishness is a yes. you know, kind of much-aired topic uh, uh, in recent years with devolution and Brexit and threats to institutions like the BBC. Yeah. So for you and for Aardman, I'm just wondering what that sense of Britishness is. Can you encapsulate it somehow? If only I could. If <laughs> only I could.
1: How easy life would be. In a way, I I, I end up taking a very simplistic view that most of us just are British. I mean, we Mm. just are. There's nothing deliberate about that. We just are. And it's simply that we do what amuses us, and there are no limits to that. Mm. And almost always that is British. But it could be, if we bumped into some young director from some completely other culture, we're working with a Polish director now, and that person had their own vision and we liked it, then we'd do it without batting an eye. We'd we'd pursue it if we believed in it, you know, if we liked it Mm. too. Mm. So we seldom emphasize it. We seldom act upon it. We think about it a bit. When the company gets bigger, you end up writing mission statements and stuff like that and other things of this sort. And and it's in there somewhere. It it crops up. Maybe for us, that is a convenient stand-in for honesty. And I mean doing the thing that you believe in, not the thing that you think that the right. public's going to like best yeah. or is going to be the most lucrative. So you just, you honestly pursue your own instincts. Yeah, yeah. Which happen to be British, yeah? But it becomes marked, though, when you're working with Hollywood, as we have been. We've been working hand-in-hand with Hollywood. There, the, the difference is clear and dramatic. I mean, you, sometimes I watch a Hollywood movie, and I will tell you, I will f- happily confess that sometimes they say, God, I wish I was American. Because <laughs> the, the way they use, like, the fast wisecrack, which is not British, we don't do that. We do something else, you know, which I love. But that real quickfire, gag, 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 that they, the best American animation does, I wish I was American so, I could, so we could do that genuinely. But we couldn't do it
0: genuinely. It would, be, it would be some weird fake thing, so we don't do it. With the films, came new technologies, your, your movie Flushed Away, which is what, 2006 was done in CGI, for example. Yeah. I mean, yeah. was it important that the company didn't get pigeonholed with around a single material around claymation? I think it was important,
1: yes. I think it was. It's very funny with the whole, you said claymation, so I'll use it even though.
0: Yeah, I'm never sure. if Should I use that? Is that a I, word? Well, we don't, but everyone else does. Yeah. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> I don't really mind it. I thought I'd wait until we're an
1: hour in before I'd- I started using that word. <laughs> I don't really mind it. I have no objection, objection to it, but we don't do it. Let's say it. So one of the debates within Ardman, and as you suggested a minute ago, that there are debates. We're not static. One of the debates is, do we keep doing just what the public love, or do we give them something different? You know, mm. Because hand on heart, what Nick Park does is what the public love best. As I said, he's a genius. But there's only one Nick Park, and what you don't want is someone else pretending to be Nick Park. You know, so ideally what what you want to find is another comedy voice that fits in well, you know. Richard Starzak, a.k.a. Golly, is Mm. perhaps the prime example because he has quite a different sense of humour, you know, from Nick. I would say a very different sense of humour. But with that, he made Shaun the Sheep, which is fantastic, you know. Nick would never have done Shaun the Sheep like that. He would have done something different with it. So finding genuine talent is what we're looking for. So go back to commercials now for a moment, now in commercials, there was in our heyday in the eighties and nineties, if you saw anything three-dimensional animated on a screen, our man was your man. That we were the people that could do that, you know. Whether that be a figure made of wood, like the cupanole man, or a figure made of butter like the Lurpak man, mm. or a figure apparently made of metal or of glass or of Lego. We did all these things. And we were the only way to do it. And gradually we were aware of this new technology that was creeping in of CGI that could do those things. Initially, they could do them, and then gradually they could do them much better than us. So that side of our work was kind of fading away a bit. So in a sense, getting into CGI was... Insurance, perhaps, is right. the best way of looking at it, you know, uh, so that we would be ready. Because one of those internal conversations was always, we can't keep doing the same thing. We can't just keep doing the same We must keep evolving. The best people keep evolving. So we try to evolve. We do evolve, heaven knows. But then we're smart enough to think, well, you know, Nick loves Wallace and Gromit, and the general public loves Wallace and Gromit, so let's do another Wallace <laughs> and Gromit film. You know, that, of course, because it's kind of bonkers not to. So we, we are doing that. So now we're working on the Wallace and Gromit film, and we're working on the CG series, and we're working on a CG game, and we're working on a CG um, feature film that, that may never happen. But yeah, so
0: we we do lots of lots of things. And how has technology changed the way you make the work in clay? I mean, I remember visiting you the first time we met was when the Pirates was uh, about to come out. And I I was intrigued to see lots of 3D printing machines You were printing lots of different eyes that could be put in and out of the clay models. So I'm just wondering how technology has changed your process.
1: Yeah, quite a lot, I think. Yep, quite a lot. And probably more and more. The first thing is the capture, to use a technical phrase, you know, that our films are now recorded digitally. They're not on film at all. Whereas if you'd come to the set of Curse of the Were-Rabbit, The cameras were enormous. They were all film cameras and everything was captured on film. Now it's all captured digitally. And I thought until very recently, like last week, that this was all good news because from the director's point of view, it is the most magnificent safety net. If something goes a bit wrong, you can always fix it, you know, in in various ways. If, you know, if the sky wasn't quite what you wanted or, you know, all the animation is great except that one character in the background that is terrible, you can fix it. In the old days, it was much harder to fix it. I like that about it very much. I liked it as a director. I liked the fact you didn't have to worry, you know. You'd see it through the camera. You'd stand there and you'd go to the set, you'd see what the camera sees, and you know that you can capture it. And if you've got um, one palm tree but you want 60, you can easily stick in the other 59, you know, that sort of thing. Just last week somebody said to me, yeah, that's that's all great but, you know, they, there's a virtue in making those decisions there in the studio in front of the camera and abiding by them and, and not changing everything after the event. Because on Chicken Run, I don't know about this, I, I'll give you some totally inaccurate figures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It might be that, that one <laughs> in all the shots, one in five would have had some post-production right, trickery right. in it, yeah, whereas yeah. now in every film we'd make, every shot has got some technical intervention Mm. somewhere along the line. Mm. But generally, I like it very much. And then the 3D printing is interesting, is interesting. There's something about 3D printing. I don't know what to think about it because, as I said to you earlier, we've developed this team of craftspeople who are brilliant with their traditional puppet-making skills. And 3D printing is, at the moment, it's enhancing what they do, making certain things possible that previously were not possible. I'm dismayed by the thought that it might take over because the model makers, the puppet makers, is one of, one of the joys of our studio. These rooms where all these people work away doing the most esoteric things brilliantly and making mould, casting latex, casting silicon. You know, some of it's mass production, some of it's exquisite manual work, real craft. And I find it faintly dismaying that that might all be replaced by a bunch of people sitting at keyboards. Yeah, yeah.
0: Technology has also changed. How projects are funded and distributed. You used a Kickstarter campaign when you brought Morph back to life a few years ago. Yeah. Why did you decide to go down that route?
1: I wonder. I think it's funny actually, because the world's changed quite a lot even since then, hasn't it? And mm. It has really. I think it was because we wanted to do more Morph and we couldn't find anyone to fund it. We couldn't find anyone to fund it. Whereas now, I suspect we could. And once it was suggested, somebody in the room suggested that we should do it, and we thought, Really? Yeah. You know, can we can we do that? Like a, a world renowned successful company like our man? Can we do that? Is that okay? You know, but we did, and I rather enjoyed it. And we chose to do it on a quite a personal level. You know, so for example, the key backers would come to visit us. That was part of the, the deal. You know, so they'd come and you know visit the studio, with wine them and dine them, and show them you know, the tricks of the trade and that kind of thing. And I enjoyed that. That was that was a nice thing to do. That made made it more. Personal in the
0: end, and now you have loads of YouTube channels, so you don't have <laughs> yes. to wait for the BBC or Channel Four no, or I know, I know. Or to come and show your wares.
1: Yes, I mean the whole social networking thing is um, going at prodigious pace, which I cannot keep up with at all. Mm. But the young people here are doing a great job. They, yeah, you know, of course, I'm, I'm joking, and yet yeah, it's all, it's yeah. true. They, 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 you know, they understand it. They speak the language. You know, they they know how it works, which I kind of don't. I mean, I'm rubbish on social media. So I quite like doing it, but I, I never got the hang of it. After years, I still haven't got the hang of it. <laughs> well,
0: Every- you got back to my message on Instagram. Pinterest, yeah, you see, right? yeah, that's, yeah, that's I did- all I care about, really. <laughs> takes me a while, but I get there, yeah. yeah. We're coming to the end. You've given us a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. We need to talk about you and David. You've had this remarkable creative partnership for so many years. I mean, yeah. have you managed to make it work for such a protracted length of time?
1: I believe that um, there's two great things. One, and one is mutual support and the other is difference and both are really important so the mutual support thing if some student says to me you know how do I get on in the business I, I'm inclined to say get a partner just because mm. it's worked so well for us you know so different skills you know di- different skills very different skills actually between Dave and I um, but baked into each other different attitudes different approaches but um, being in a partnership is an immense comfort and reassurance you know someone to celebrate with when it goes well and someone to lean on when things go badly i think that's really really important Mm. and then difference i guess it's closely connected it's just having a different skill set you know so you get the best of both worlds i mean dave knows things in most amazing fashion which i don't at all i mean i suspect he could give a cogent lecture on 20 different subjects that would last for half an hour and i'm Apart from talking about plastic, I'm stumped after <laughs> about two minutes. I think yeah, that's different. And uh, they was technically in mind and loves it, you know, always loved film and lenses and computers and stuff like that, which I've never really understood. We both had an instinct for storytelling, which we combined in the early years, but probably now we'd we have very different instincts for storytelling. There's one amusing feature which strikes me there's that um, if we're designing something, I, I am planning a, sh- a shoot, then planning shots. Because I'm left-handed and he's right-handed, and we would always see the world in mirror image to each other. Mm, you know, interesting. if we if we sat down to think about an idea, I naturally assume that Morph is on the, you know, left of screen and they've naturally assumed he's on the right of screen, that kind of thing. And that's it's always continued, uh, interestingly. So, yeah, and third point, or maybe it's the same point again, that although we're different, very different, really, in, in the skill set and personality, actually, I think, really – most importantly, we felt the same about the important things, which is the way we run the company, which, frankly, phrase it how you like, has never been to make money. Like, I mean, mm. we do, but that's absolutely not why we do it. That's not why we do it. You know, We do it for the love of what we create. And one of the things we create is the community. So it's that. You know? So it's the films and the community that we love they keep us going and we don't do it for the money. We just never have. So, you know, neither of us has a second home or a fancy car or anything. We just happen to feel that way. Whereas if you've got uh, two competing agendas there, that's difficult and that's dangerous, perhaps.
0: And Aldman, of course, is now employee owned. Yes. I guess you've actually probably described why you went down that route because it would have made financial sense, I imagine, to have sold to somebody bigger.
1: Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. I said to the team, the workforce whatever they're called, <laughs> the partners, when we all got together before we did it, when we were announcing it, I remember saying, and it was absolutely genuine, I said, the reason we're doing this is because we love the company. And I think that is actually it. That is it. That's the reason we're doing yeah. it. And a sense of fairness towards those people who'd helped us to build it, absolutely. But above all for me, because I love the company, the last thing I wanted on earth was this thing that we'd grown over 40 plus years to be just a thing, an asset to be traded around, bounced around, because that's what we wanted to avoid. You know, yeah, like yeah. we could have found some company that we really liked the look of, you know, and trusted. Ah, oh, you know, let's, let's sell it to old so-and-so. They, they're a good bet. But the way the world works is that old so-and-so, then him or herself then gets bought out. And before you know it, you're just an asset, you know, someone's asset. And I never wanted the company to be that. So that's why we did it this way.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what's the future for you? You're not going to retire, are you?
1: No, I'm not going to don't. no, I don't think I I mean, I will. I presume I will one day. Not least because the part of the business that I'm in particularly is developing movies that I want to get made. Mm. I won't make them. I won't direct them personally because that is too much work. I've spotted this. That is such (laughs) a massive job. I don't relish that at all. But I want them to get made. And the way it goes is you start working on them, And they don't actually get finished for um, five years if you're lucky, Mm. seven Mm. years. You know, it's it's a long old game. But unfortunately, the trouble with that is because I must note to self: I mustn't take on anything else now. If I got involved in a new (laughs) thing now, that might be you know eight years before it's finished. So that would might be too much. So you know, these films, it's hard to describe what part I played. I mean, I think they call me executive producer. It's just being objective, um, critical, caring eye. Uh, trying to occasionally remind everyone that this is, whatever else is, it's an R-band film, whatever that means, I do that a bit yeah. Very good,
0: yeah. very good. So, yep. the future, there are still more films to come from you. Yep, Great. absolutely, absolutely. Great, glad to hear it.
1: Yes, and, and we continue to look for new ideas. I think that's obvious, isn't it? But like, new comic voices is what we're always looking for. And now these projects that I'm exec producing, interesting, some of them are, Mainstream what you expect from Ardman and some are working with new people who come from outside Ardman, so they will be different, you know, in a good way, I hope,
0: I insist. Very good. Very good. Peter we've taken up loads of your time. I really, really appreciate it. I love that. Thank you so much. Good, great pleasure. Great pleasure. And to discover more about Peter and Ardman, go to Ardman.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Next up, I talked to Elaine Yangling Ng about her new work with waste eggshells. Look out for that next week. Thanks very much for listening.